Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hello, Candace. I have a new last name, yes, but the content is all the same on the inside. So I don't, don't know, get you're fold. a different person to me. I I'm smiling that. a lot more because I have a wonderful <laughs> hubby, but... Same, same history buff as always, and today we actually have a very seemingly dry but quite juicy topic for you guys. That's right. Today we're talking about the East India Company, and we should clarify that there are actually a couple East India Companies, and when people, when historians talk about the East India Company, they usually refer to the British, which is what we're going to focus on, but we're going we're gonna to talk about the other ones as well. Yeah, so if you like tea and you love opium, <laughs> this is the episode for you. Yeah, I think you can say that for sure. To give you some background, uh, what's really important is that back, back a few years after Columbus discovered, uh, the Americas, uh, the Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama actually discovered a water route to the East Indies on the other side of the world. So this made it so much easier to travel, it was faster to travel to the East Indies, which had so much so many commodities that Europe was after, especially spices. And if you've ever had British food, I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not, it's pretty bland. Sorry, British listeners. Yeah. We do love our fish and chips, though. <laughs> but that's exactly why Europe was so, was so after the East India, Indies. It was, it had so many good spices, and we all know how good they can be. So Queen Elizabeth, a very enterprising woman, thought, I really want a piece of that pie. And she came up with a very innovative way in which she could raise enough money in addition to what was available in the royal treasury to get a bunch of ships together to go and make a successful trade route for England. That's right. And it's interesting to note that the Dutch sort of got a head start on England at this time. Even though they didn't have their official charter yet, they were doing really well uh, over in the East Indies. Like I said, they didn't have an official charter, and this was causing a lot of problems back home for them because individual companies would compete each other and flood the market with spices, and so the profits would drop and they wouldn't have enough to fund their more more uh, sea ventures, etc. And so England actually took a really smart move, you know, when when the London merchants got together and asked Queen Elizabeth for a charter. And so she granted it to them on December 31st, 1600, a, a very grand day, because this charter, you know, what seemed to be an innocuous piece of paper that allowed people to trade more successfully turned England into this major world superpower. And it started a few precedents, and um, our colleague Josh Clark writes a great article about um, how the East India Company changed the world. And in it, he talks about how this company was basically the first joint stock corporation. And what that means, basically, if you're not you know into the business jargon, is that investors uh, are given a share of ownership in the company. And if the company should go under, you are guaranteed not to lose any more than what you put in the company. That's right. It was the first limited liability corporation. Exactly. And here in the United States, we abbreviate that as LLC. Over in England, it's LTD. And it's good news because, especially in times like these, if a company goes under, you're guaranteed that you won't be responsible for any outstanding debts that the company has occurred. So very, very smart move on Elizabeth's behalf. 
That's right. And they had this charter, and the Dutch uh, learned from it. They they made their own charter a couple years later. And so England was still catching up with the Dutch for, for decades to come. They would fight each other over, over on the other side of the world. It's interesting to note, it took about a year to go back and forth to the, from the East Indies to Europe. So and just were, to clarify, the route you're talking about, are you mm-hmm. talking about sailing down both sides of Africa and through the Cape of Good Hope? Right. Okay. Yes, that's right. Thank you for clarifying that. And so because it took so long for this transportation, they couldn't, whenever they had a dispute, they couldn't very well come back to their, to their uh, original countries and then come back. It would just take much too long. And so these companies had their own military resources. They would fight each other. They would fight even local areas if the local governor there was just being uncooperative and they didn't want to deal with it. So they were catching up with the Dutch for a long time. There was this interesting book called Splendid Exchange by William Bernstein. And I love his description of the East India Company because he calls it the obnoxious kid brother of the <laughs> Dutch East India Company because the Dutch had uh, basically better ships, better technology, more ships, and the English were just catching up for so long. It was sort of a, a case of anything you can do, I can do better. And yeah. they took it to the extreme. Yeah, exactly. And so the Dutch sort of had control over the Spice Islands. That was their territory. And, the, and uh, they were elbowing the English uh, to more unprofitable, not as nice ports. And so the English sort of made their way to India instead. And mm-hmm. in India, they were able to capitalize on their claws and textiles. And not to mention their opium. And what was rather irresponsible of the East India Company is that they would force the people and the lands that they control to purchase their commodities only from them. So they would essentially take hold of all the commodities, whether it was tea in the um, American colonies or opium in the Indian colonies. And they would use that to, to leverage their their power essentially like we we all know the story of the Boston Tea Party and Jane and I have done a podcast about it as well. In short, the East India Company had a bunch of surplus tea that it needed to unload, and the prime target market were the American colonists. So they made it much much more attractive to buy tea from the EIC than from any other purveyor of the tea, and the colonists did not like being told where to buy their stuff from. That's right. One historian put it that the colonists dumped the tea in, in the ocean because uh, the East India Company was dumping the tea on them. You know, they had their surplus. and they did, tat. Right. They didn't <laughs> want it forced down their throats, basically. Well, and that's what the colonies were founded on, this I- idea of freedom. So who is England to come in and say, you have to buy from us, which sure. is essentially what they were doing. Yeah, and... Either way you look at it, it did lead to the American Revolution. Like it, it was a contributing factor, one of the major events that you know we're taught in history class. This uh, helped lead to the war, and you know it helped form the United States today. And so it's a huge influence that the East India Company had over world events. To think that a business essentially could mm-hmm. have started a war like that is is a really powerful thought, and it's not just in the American colonies that the EIC provoked this kind of uprising. You know, we said before that they were trying to control all the opium exports over in India, and it led to a very similar revolution there. That's right. And to give you some background on that, India was a very fragmented territory. It wasn't unified by any means when um, the East India Company came in. The East India Company businessmen basically had to make individual deals with all the local rulers at that time in India, and some were more cooperative than others. So they made individual contracts, like I said, and they got, uh, at first, their textiles and their claws, they they uh, they made a lot of money from uh, that commodity, but this became less profitable, and they uh, so had to shift over to the spices in India. And 
they were mostly after China to get Chinese porcelain, silk, and tea. And so you have this multiple trade system going on. So the Chinese were getting less and less interested in the textiles, but they were getting more and more interested in opium. Oh, who wouldn't? <laughs> so opium became a major, a major uh, point in the East India Company's trade between India and China. And uh, like Candice alluded to before, no Indian was able to grow opium in India without uh, selling it to the East India Company. And uh, so they sold it to, to China. And basically, China had a lot of problems with this. They didn't want uh, to deal with this anymore, the Chinese authorities, we should say. And at least in my history class, the way they painted it to me was that opium was a highly addictive, uh, dangerous drug, and the East India Company was was very irresponsible in taking advantage of this. And uh, actually, Bernstein, the historian I, I mentioned before, he actually said that it wasn't quite like that. Uh, only about 1% of the Chinese uh, smoked opium to such an extent that they got addicted, which is still bad. I mean, uh, opium was a problem at the time. But also, one of the issues was that the Chinese authorities did they did have a moral issue with, with the opium trade, but it was mostly about the economy and economic issues involved in opium. About 1806, the value of opium coming into China exceeded the value of tea going out. And so this was a problem. The country was starting to hemorrhage uh, silver. And so this is what eventually bubbled up into two opium wars. But another problem that was occurring during this time was that the, the British troops essentially were creating private armies from the local Indian populations. And so can you imagine that this foreign corporation comes into your country demands that all the farmers around you sell their crops only to them and furthermore taps you for service in a private army. It just, it didn't seem right. And so there was an uprising. That's right. And this is called the Sepoy Rebellion. And Sepoy was the name of one of these Indian uh, soldiers who fought for the East India Company. But the Sepoy Rebellion back in 1857, it wasn't exactly successful. Um, it was India's really sort of first major effort to get their independence from Great Britain, but it didn't really worked because the British army was able to overtake them. Not surprisingly, yeah. they were outnumbered. So India was an English colony really until about 1947 right. when it became and a republic. That's right. And I guess that story deserves a podcast in its own because it's, you know, Gandhi and everything. There's so much to talk about in that arena. But we should also go back and mention that this is around the same time as the two opium wars, which were both uh, failures on, on China's part. And so it, they both just ended up in expanding the trading rights for the East India Company in China. So it's a tough situation. It really was. And sort of a, a side note to all of this, and this is really a matter more of, of personal interest, because last night when I was reading about the East India Company, um, my husband Stuart said, oh, you have to talk about IPA and um, being sort of a, a beer aficionado. India Pale Ale? India Pale Ale. Really? He was like, well, you know, what about the role of IPA? In, in India, and I didn't really know much about it. So just, you know, as, as a treat for all of you out there, you know, for those of you who like opium, you got yours, and now all of you beer lovers are going to get yours. <laughs> um, essentially, the, the British were very, very used to drinking ale. It was something that was part of their culture. It was something they expected. It was sort of like, I don't know, Southerners like to drink their sweet tea. People like water. Well, they expected their beer. But the problem with the trade route from England to India is that it was so long and the weather changed so drastically from the site of the creation to the site of the unloading that they had to figure out a way to make beer differently so that it would make it on the trip. It'd be like driving to the grocery store to get a gallon of milk and then taking a three-hour trip home, not having a cooler <laughs> in your car. By the time you get there, it's not going to be good for drinking. Sure. So um, a town called 
Burton on Trent had water that had a really high concentration of, of gypsum or um, calcium sulfate. And this actually helped change the, the quality of the beer. In addition to adding extra hops to it, it'd make it really bitter and sort of fruity tasting, but it made it stronger and had more preservative quality so that it could mature more quickly and stay more stable. And so the traders in India, as well as members of the Navy and the Army there, could drink it and be happy because hmm. they had their beer. And I actually I got this information from the Meantime Brewing Company, which is a great website if you're curious about the history of, of beer. But I learned there that IPA is considered a running beer, and running beer means that you can drink it immediately. It doesn't have to sit around and mature like ale does. You know, you see in movies, ale is containing those really big oak barrels where it's, you know, I guess aging and, and getting more delicious with time. But it was incredibly popular, and the colonists, you know, drank it up. I think they were allotted something like a gallon a day, and maybe even more after IPA became more successful. And you can still get your IPA today. Wow. So who knew? You'd be learning so much about beer today. But, you know, we care about you guys, so <laughs> that's that. And if you want to know even more about other subjects or there's something that tickles your fancy that you want to hear Jane and me discuss, email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. That's right, and if we don't do a podcast on it, we could write a blog on it. And uh, if you haven't seen it yet, you should go check out our blog, Stuff You Missed in History class on howstuffworks.com. And you can comment on our stuff, and we both uh, post twice a day, so it's a lot of fun. It is. It's like getting a, a quick 60-second dose of Candace and Jane every weekday. You're mm-hmm. going to love it. And if you want to learn even more about the East India Company or beer or Queen Elizabeth, be sure to check out articles on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 